Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. The audience is drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. The Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, will delve into this topic. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Now we join our A Matter of Facts podcast host, Nancy Karabjanian. Thanks for joining us again on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm Tom Byrne, sitting in for Nancy Karabjanian. In recent years, a very contentious battle has been waged over public symbols of the Confederacy, specifically monuments, statues, and memorials throughout the South. Many have called for their removal, saying they are racist symbols of the country's legacy of slavery. The other side argues they should remain because of their significance in recounting our country's history and honoring the heritage of the South and those who fought for the Confederacy. The debate intensified in 2015 after nine African Americans were killed in a Charleston, South Carolina church shooting by a white man who said he sought to start a race war. And again in 2017, after a white nationalist march to protest the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia, saw a counter-protester killed amid violent clashes between demonstrators. And while it has not been in the national headlines as much recently, this is an ongoing debate. Earlier this month, a judge in Alabama ruled against that state's 2017 law prohibiting the removal of historical monuments that have been placed for more than 40 years. The judge argued the law violated the rights of citizens opposed to Confederate monuments and, quote, placed a thumb on the scale for a pro-Confederacy message, unquote. And the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill removed the base of its controversial Silent Sam monument recently, the main portion of which was toppled by protesters last year. To delve more into this topic and where it stands now and to gain some more historical perspective and context, we welcome Dr. Caroline Janey director of the John Now Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. She's the author of Burying the Dead, But Not the Past, Ladies Memorial Associations and the Lost Cause, and Remembering the Civil War, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation. Caroline Janey, thank you so much for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I want to hit on is that while for some this may seem like a somewhat contemporary issue born out of the flashpoint events I I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, uh, it's not, is it? It's not. The debates over how the Civil War should or should not be remembered have been there as long as since the Civil War itself. Since since the, the guns stopped firing in the spring of 1865, there have been debates among various groups, Union and Confederates, um, white and black, men and women, over who gets to control the story that we tell ourselves about the war. So let's head back in time. Can you tell us a little bit about how the initial monuments built in the era shortly after the Civil War were received and and how they reflect how the war was remembered at that time? Sure. So the very first monuments that went up, there were a handful of monuments that went up during the war itself. Those were primarily in cemeteries, so they were memorial in nature, Union uh, soldiers in particular. 
But the first monuments that we can talk about on, a, on battlefields, for example, happened at Manassas or Bull Run in the summer of 1865. Keep in mind that there's a great deal of irony that the, the first two monuments that went up, they were sandstone monuments put up by Union soldiers in honor of their um, brethren, their comrades who had died during both the first and second Battle of Manassas battles. And the, the irony comes in that those were both Confederate victories on the battlefield. But this was in Virginia, and they were worried about how these monuments might be received. And so there was a great deal of debate about whether former Confederates would vandalize these monuments. So those were some of the the first Union monuments in the years, and more importantly, in the, the decades that followed by the 1870s, and especially the 1880s. And it's really the 1880s we start to see an uptick of Union monuments in places like uh, Courthouse Lawns, or by the late 1880s, Gettysburg in particular. Mm -hmm. Confederate monuments start primarily in cemeteries. The earliest ones are, um, one of the the earliest was a pyramid that's in Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. And those uh, monuments tended to be more... um, more of a mourning nature, as would be fitting in a cemetery. We don't find the Confederate statues as we think about courthouse lawns Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing until the very end of the century. It's really 1890s that we start to see monuments, Confederate monuments, that is, move out of the cemeteries into more public spaces. As we move forward in time, a fair amount has been written in the media about the the comprehensive study of Confederate statues and monuments published by the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2016, and it showed spikes in construction of them twice during the 20th century in the early 1900s and then again in the 1950s and 60s, which they point out were times of heightened civil rights tension. Is it fair to directly connect those spikes in monuments to an effort to disenfranchise African Americans or promote white supremacy or, or any of those kind of narratives we've seen? Yes and no. One of the the wonderful things, not this is a bit of an aside, but one of the the wonderful things about studying history are the many complexities and contradictions and ironies. And this is a a case in point that, so the the answer to your question is yes, they are related, and no, they're, they're not related. If we look at those two peaks of monument, Confederate monument building, the other two things that we have to keep in mind the, the first peak that happens around 1911 through the early 1920s was the semi-centennial, the, the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of the Civil War. And so there was a lot of activity surrounding that, whether we think about blue-gray reunions that happened at places like Gettysburg. That, that high point is both a reflection of the 50th anniversary it's also a point in which the Civil War, the generation, both Union and Confederate, it's not unlike what happened several years ago when World War II monuments were going up mm-hmm. throughout the country. As that generation started to pass away, their children and grandchildren made a concerted effort to memorialize them. Um, it was also in response, Confederate monuments were also in response to the, the growing number of Union monuments as well. So those Confederate monuments that go up, they're going up at the same time, for example, as the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and the Grant Memorial in front of Congress, so 1922. So in some ways, 
they're not connected at all to whether it's the birth of the Niagara Movement in 1909 and the NAACP and to the atrocities, the horrible things that were going on with segregation, disfranchisement, um, lynchings, all of those other things that are going on. Now, did the Confederate monuments serve to bolster and remind African Americans of their place in society? Absolutely. But I'm not convinced that that was the number one reason that they go up when they went up, especially in the teens and early 20s. But perhaps maybe maybe more so in the 50s and 60s? More so in the 50s and 60s, yes. Now, again, that the 1960s marks the, um, the centennial. Right. I do think there is a clearer connection in the 50s and 60s. And especially the key is not just looking at the monuments themselves, but looking at the language of the memorial speeches, dedications, things mm-hmm. of that nature that give us some context. And that absolutely, the, the silent Sam speech at, at UNC, mm-hmm. that surely is indicative of racial attitudes, white supremacist <laughs> attitudes, and how those were built into that monument. I'm not denying that those those aspects weren't there, but we see it more and more as we move into the 20th century. We see it more and more, even in the 30s and 40s, the rhetoric is much more stringently about, for example, the federal government imposing its will on the South mm-hmm. and resisting that um, intrusion, if you will, of the federal government in the same way that Confederates had tried to resist uh, the national government telling them what to do. So th- there are more parallels in the 1950s and 60s than in that early 20th century period. Is there any indication how African Americans felt about these monuments when they went up? And, and does that say anything about how we should view them or their impact? Oh, absolutely. So to uh, response, one of the best examples of responses uh, is a little bit earlier. It's the, the Lee Monument that goes up in Richmond on Monument Avenue in 1890. Mm-hmm. And the African-American newspaper in Richmond, the Richmond Planet, John Mitchell, African-American editor, he was also a member of the Richmond City Council. Uh, he's pretty plain-spoken about what he thought the Lee Monument meant to African-Americans. And it was a reminder of their inferior status, of their place. And he did not believe that taxpayer money and the, the statue itself was funded and a lot of different ways from private donations, but the fact that the city was, in fact, allowing this plot of land, that um, it was a citywide celebration, he, he condemned and, and saw this as a symbol of white power, if not necessarily. If that wasn't the reason that people initially started raising money to put the monument up, it certainly has that message built into it. We are speaking with Caroline Janey, director of the John Now Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia, about Confederate monuments and the battle over their removal. Uh, I wanted to ask you, as, as much as we attempt to kind of add this context and understanding you're bringing us you know, about these monuments and, and why they were built, uh, there is no escaping, obviously, how many view them now in the context of the current political climate. Do you see that as, as the reason why this has become such a contentious debate, this effort to try to reconcile the history with the here and now? Um, absolutely. And it's also a reflection of the way in which memory, whether we're talking about Civil War memorialization or any other um, 
aspect of our past that we choose to commemorate and memorialize rather than simply interrogate and understand. There's a, a natural pattern to that. So the efforts of people to put up monuments or to create museums in the, the 19th century were a product of their time, a product of the context, the social, political, economic context in which they lived. And the same is true now. The efforts to uh, take down monuments is very much you know, situated within the context of Black Lives Matter and other social political movements that are going on. So in some ways, we need to take a, a long duree view. We need to, to back up and look at that long trajectory. This is another part of the story. You know, the monuments went up in a particular time and place. And as we see them either come down or see their memory challenged, that absolutely is both a product of and a reflection of contemporary political issues. A, a number of ideas have been put forward about what to do with uh, these Confederate monuments. What do you see as the, the pros and cons to removal versus providing context to them and leaving them where they are, or perhaps moving to an alternate location such as a museum and offering context in, in that type of venue? Well, I first and foremost believe that it's up to individual communities to decide that. And I think what's happened in Alabama, we're, we're on the right way, in which the state or a state no longer is going to make decisions for communities. So what those communities decide to do, you know, I, I, I think that is the central, um, the central, maybe not answer, but but it should be decided at the community level. Uh, there are certainly pros and cons to removing monuments. If you remove them from the place where they exist, whether that's just, for example, a courthouse lawn mm-hmm. or, or in the case of UNC, you know, the, the middle of campus, a very prominent place on campus, then on one hand, you've removed that uh, symbol of many different things, and it's been a symbol of different things over time. We know, for example, that Silent Sam was a place in which white supremacists had rallied for many years. That's not something that's new as of 2015, 2017. Mm-hmm. So you're removing that place, that symbol for such groups. But at the same time, and it's not that you're losing history. I don't mean to, I know in, in other venues I've suggested that we're removing history. We're not removing history of the Confederates. What we're removing is the story of people who tried to control the narrative. And so we have to to be conscious of what that does when we take that part of the story out. We need to make sure that we are relaying the contentious nature of all of this. Uh, If you put a monument in in a museum, especially a monument, a big towering equestrian monument, doesn't quite have the same impact for good and bad, for good and bad, that it has on a city street, for example. So, again, though, I, I think you know different communities have found different ways of offering interpretive, um, great, great new ways of interpreting the past. So, in Baltimore, where the Tawny, one of the Tawny memorials, he's taken down and two chairs are put up, mm-hmm. and that's symbolic in its own right. 
There's no one answer. Delaware's only Confederate monument is in the southern part of the state, in the town of Georgetown. It was installed in 2007 by a group of descendants of Confederate veterans on the property of the Marvell Carriage Museum. Uh, the museum is a private, nonprofit facility run by the Georgetown Historical Society. Uh, so my, my question based on that is how different a discussion is this when we're talking about something like this that's on a private property, private facility compared to a public property like a university or, as you said, a courthouse or something like that? That makes all the difference in the world. I mean, if, if it's on someone's private property, then he or she or that corporation, whatever the case may be, has the right to do so. We, we might not like it, but that's not the same as a public university or a courthouse square that belongs to all of us. So, I mean, I know some of the surrounding Antietam, for example, a monument to Lee went up not so many years ago, but it's on private property. So there's nothing that the Park Service can do about that. So it's it's not unlike the question of the Confederate battle flag. Mm-hmm. You know, private individuals, as offensive as we may find it along Interstate 4 or 29 South in Virginia flying big Confederate flags, if that's on private property, then that's you know, freedom of speech, that's that's one thing. That's not the case when it's flying above or adjacent to a state house, the South Carolina State House, or whatever the case may be. We've also heard the, the, the slippery slope argument, right? How far should this go? Should building and street names be changed, et cetera? Uh, and if you do this, what might not, what might be next beyond Confederate symbols to be removed? And what does that mean for detailing our history? It, it, what do you feel about that argument that, that some people make when, when trying to defend the Confederate monuments? Well, you know, again, that we're a product of the times in which we live. And if, if people now think that if, if a given community, whether that's a, a school, decides that it's time to change its name, time to change its mascot, or a, a city decides that there's a street that needs to be changed, if that's how the people there feel, and that's how they see, they, as, as they think about what that name or symbol represents to them, then that absolutely should, should be something that happens. So the, the slippery slope argument you know, can be made about so many things, right. an easy way out of really engaging in a topic. I'm curious, are there any other cultural comparisons we can draw upon when we look at this debate uh, to see what other countries may have done in similar situations and how their decisions wind up playing out? Well, you know, the, the reference is usually made to Nazi Germany. I don't think those comparisons uh, fit quite as easily or as well as we might like them to where the Confederacy is concerned. So I, I think it's not that we should be looking to other countries or other places. We should be listening to people here and trying to figure out what communities want and who has a voice in that. that that's the big difference if we look at, say, the 1920s. Who got to decide where any monument went up, whether that monument was to, to Roger Taney or to a Confederate soldier, what people in the community were involved, who had a voice and who did not. And to the degree that we can have a more collective conversation, that's the key today to be representative of what we as a society in 2019 think is appropriate and worth commemorating. And that, that's, that's the difference. You know, we can that, – that, that's what memorialization is, that understanding history, interpreting history, 
reading about, studying, writing about history doesn't mean that we either necessarily uh, condone or condemn the past. But monuments are different because they are meant to commemorate. They're meant to hold up a certain set of values and ideals. And so it, it has to be reflective of what a group of people, a society today, thinks is worth celebrating. And it's, it's that celebratory nature that we need to keep in mind. And we uh, like to end our podcast by asking each of our guests uh, the same question, and that is, where do you get your news? What are your favorite news sources? News in terms of national news, international news, what are, what are you, you it, it, thinking it, of? Uh, honestly, uh, either one. You can, you can speak to all kind of gen- general news or, or also in terms of if you want to speak specifically to kind of your, your venue of study. Well, uh, those are, are different, um, different arenas for me. I am somebody who gets news from a variety of fashions, both um, new and old. I still listen to NPR. I um, you know, watch network news and CNN on TV, but I still turn to the Times and Washington Post. And I also am a firm believer in knowing what's going on in my local community. So the local Charlottesville newspaper and the, the University of Virginia Cavalier Daily are places that I, that I go to. Dr. Caroline Janey, director of the John Now Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia, thank you so much for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast today. Thank you. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.